Are right, you guys good? Everybody got what they need? Good. All right. So last week, what did we start? Romans, right? We looked at verses 1 through 7, right? And we kind of checked out. First of all, we looked at what sin does in our life. We saw that it has four things. What were those four things? Anybody remember? Selfishness at its heart. Produces guilt. Produces meaninglessness and hopelessness, right? Now, how does sin produce meaninglessness? If we sin, we're outside of God's will, right? And our life was created to do God's will. Okay? So when we sin and we're outside of God's will, that means everything we were created to do, we're not doing, which makes what we do meaningless. All right? And that leads to hopelessness because as we become more meaningless, we seek for things to go well, but as we continue to do things wrong, things don't go well. And so that produces hopelessness. Right? So we looked at that, and then we kind of went through, and we saw uh, what Paul is as a bondservant, what he is as an apostle, right? His, his office, right? His ministry, uh, what his calling was. And then um, <clears throat> we looked at what the Holy Scriptures were and why Holy Scriptures were mentioned here. And it's the only place in the Bible the phrase Holy Scriptures was mentioned. Do you guys remember why that was? It's because Paul had to... What was that? Right. Right, because the rabbis are writing their own writings, right? And that's what the people were looking to, called the rabbinical writings of the Talmud. Right, it's like a, law, a book of laws, basically, right? And so they would look to that instead of the scriptures. So they missed that on Christ because they weren't looking at the scriptures because they were looking for the wrong things. Okay, they were looking to their world for answers instead of scripture, and they ended up killing their Messiah, their Savior. Okay, and so we looked at that, and then we kept going through, and we looked at a few other things um, that kind of backed that up. And today. Uh, we're going to continue that greeting Paul has, okay? We looked at who Christ was and why Paul talks about Christ. Okay, now we're going to look at um, who this group is that he's talking to. And Paul's going to kind of focus on who he is, okay, before he goes and talks to them. All right, so I've read a lot of books. I've watched a lot of movies, uh, a lot of educational movies. I've been taught by a lot of really smart people, okay? And I've learned a lot of things from those people. But the times that I learned the most is when I see those same people acting out what they're teaching. Okay, When I see those exact same people doing the things that they try to teach me, and I see the passion behind it. So when I'm able to see that devotion, that passion that someone puts into something, it excites me into action. Okay, Because I see, wow, that's awesome. You know, I, I understood it when you were teaching it to me, but now that I see it happening... say, yeah, that's cool. That's neat. I'm really glad you have that passion. And, and some of those things you're telling me are really awesome. But until you see that person excited and in action about that passion, you don't fully understand what the convictions or the motivations behind that passion are until you see it acted out. But once you understand, um, I like teaching because I really enjoy sharing the word of God. I, I want God to be known. That's why I enjoy teaching. You know, I want you guys to understand God better. Once you understand that, you understand my passion better which excites you into action, which your action would be to listen because you would be excited to hear what God has shown me. Okay? Sometimes. You don't always have to be excited that I'm going to teach you. I understand that. Uh, and once I understand the reason behind whatever that person was teaching or that passion that we're looking at, I want to listen and learn. And I want to take it to the next step. Okay? Because I understand what the convictions are behind that passion. Does that make sense? Okay. So Paul's going to do that exactly right here in these next eight verses. Um, 8 through 15. And Paul sets himself forth for his readers to understand uh, before he even attempted to teach them. Okay, Paul set forth and said, this is who I am. This is why I want to come to you. And he set that forth before he even came to them so that they would understand when he got there, this is what I want to accomplish. This is who I am. Okay, And you're not going to have to guess during the things I'm teaching because I'm going to explain it to you before I even get here. So by doing this, Paul showed them the passion behind what he was set apart for. We found out last week that Paul set apart for the gospel of Christ as an apostle, right? And through that, he essentially said, before I show you my theology, I'm going to show you myself. Because it's going to be a lot easier for you to listen to me if you know who I am, all right? Now, pretend I came here two years ago. By the way, I've been here for two years last Monday. Pretty exciting. That's a cool mile mark, milestone. And so um, I was pretty excited about that. Pretend I came here two years ago. All right, 
and I came here, and I just taught you and then left every Wednesday and every Sunday. Okay, and I continued to do that for the entire time that I was here. How much would you really want to listen to me? If, I, if all you knew was that I was going to teach you, okay, no communication, no leadership, no ideas, no goals, no understanding of my passions or my desires for this group, uh, no extra events, no nothing except for me laying down the law to you guys all the time, just teaching, and then leaving, not hanging out or anything, how well would you accept that? Not very well, right? The things that I taught would probably not even be listened to, and most of the part, you probably wouldn't even be here. And I went in the last two years. <laughs> so, um, but you guys see what I'm saying? Paul's letting the Roman Christians know that he serves God the same way that he teaches God. So he's not just laying this down in your face, and he's not just excited to tell you these things because it's what he's supposed to do. Paul does this because this is his life. This is who Paul is. Okay? So uh, he's walking the walk, and he wants them to come alongside of him and join him on the journey. That's what his goal is. He wants them to understand what this journey is, he wants them to grasp onto the passion. And then when he comes to teach these things, the people will already be so excited about what's going to be taught that they'll be walking and right in line with him. All right, so also the people in Rome would have wondered, uh, and this is another reason these first eight verses are here, they would have been wondering why this great apostle, who most of them didn't even know, was writing them this huge, profound letter about the things they're doing wrong and the things he can encourage them in. Um, you know, they all kind of knew who Paul was, but not really. Um, and also, if this stuff is so important to write down in this letter that's like a million pages long, why didn't he just come and visit? Right? Paul hadn't been there yet. Why didn't he just come and visit? So these guys are kind of wondering what's going on. So he gives answer to those things in the coming verses. Number one, it's to ease their minds um, of those he wants to teach. All right? He wants them to understand, number one, who he is. But then number two, it's okay. I, I do care for you guys. I love you guys. I want you guys to know that. But I just can't come to you right now. Okay? So we're going to look at nine qualified qualities when it comes to serving the Lord in true spiritual service. Qualified qualities. So, quality number one. Actually, you know what? Let's read uh, verses 1, or verses 8 through 15 of Romans 1. It says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit, is the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness, as to show how, as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making requests that perhaps now at the last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and have been forbidden thus far, in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles." I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Qualified quality number one. We see it in verse number eight, and it's thanks based on Christ. Thanks based on Christ. So this first quality of thankfulness. Um, Paul had plenty of this. Every letter, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, all the time. Paul was grateful for what God had done through him. Okay, but he was not also thankful for what God was doing. He was also thankful for what God was doing in and through other believers. So Paul was glad that God gave him this ministry. Okay, he loved it. He was excited to do it and he loved doing it. But what he was most excited about was that God was doing things in other believers. Okay? And he was excited to get some of that. He was thankful that God was working in both ways, through Paul and through all the other believers. It isn't all about us. Um, the work we do is important, but the work everybody does is what makes up the church. Um, <clears throat> the full service of God requires that everybody do their part. Uh, we all have people that we don't like, and we all try to avoid those people. How many of you guys have somebody you don't like? Or don't really get along with very well? Okay, And don't you kind of try to avoid the conversations with that person, or maybe make them really short? Or maybe just don't talk about things that you're going to get frustrated about. You know, you, you all know who I'm talking about. Don't act like you guys are holy, extra holy. Um, what we have to realize, guys, is those people, especially the ones in the church, are just as much a body of Christ as we are. Okay, And they all have roles to fulfill. Um, notice that Paul did not thank the Romans themselves, but instead thank God for them. This prevented flattery from happening, but also it kept Paul's mind in the right place. Guys, we can nurture these people that we don't really like, these people don't really get along with, but we need to look at them 
as in they're serving God. They're doing something God wants them to do. Maybe they're teaching us patience. Okay? Maybe that's what God has them there for. We don't know. But what we need to do is we need to look at them as God's servers. Okay? Bond servants of Christ. That's how we have to look at them. And if we start looking at them that way, they won't be so annoying. I promise you. Because when you have an annoying person, what do you think most about that person? What's annoying about them? Right? You don't think about the good things. You think about what you're annoyed about. If we start looking at Christ and everybody, those annoyances won't be so big. Alright, so... Um, how many times do we accomplish things and forget to thank God for those things? We pray for accomplishment to happen, but then when the accomplishment finally happens, we kind of forget God how to part in it. You know? and, we, and we make steps and we get to places where we want to be, but then all of a sudden, you know, God kind of comes out of that equation. Um, when Paul thanked God for the faith of the Romans, he prevented the Romans from thinking that they did it all. And it also prevented Paul from thinking the same thing. Okay? Paul... Um, was always very careful to protect his mind and protect his heart. He's always ready and eager um, to be humble, to be under somebody else, and to learn from other believers. Okay? And so when Paul was thinking the Romans, he didn't want them to think, wow, Paul's thinking the Romans doing pretty good. You know, we're doing all right. And then to give up on the striving for the faith that they were doing. Because what happens, guys, when we get complacent with what we have? We don't try much harder, do we? We kind of stick where we're at. Right? Right. All right, let's just go on. Verses 9 through 10. So number one is thankfulness through Christ. Verses 9 through 10 is concerned about the spiritual condition of others. Concerned about the spiritual condition of others. Paul was excited and concerned about what had been and what was happening at the present time, but Paul was always deeply concerned as to what needed to still be accomplished. Because this is verses 9 through 10 is where we get concerned about spiritual condition. Sorry about that. When we look at our church, we get excited about what is happening and we forget that tomorrow is a new day. Or that the hour after we leave the worship service, we are back in the world again. Guys, in order to grow as Christians, we must keep focused on what we still need to accomplish. Concerned about the spiritual condition of others. If we ever get satisfied with where we are in our walk with God, we are in a bad place. Because there is always more we can do. If we ever get complacent with where we are with God, we're not concerned. Right? There's always work to be done. There's always something in our relationship with God that could be mended, restored, or added. There's always something there. And if we are satisfied with our current condition, we are not desiring God, which means we're out of His will, which means what? We're meaningless. And then, we're only going to accomplish meaningless things. Do you guys catch that? If we're, if we're satisfied with our current condition, it means that we are not desiring God. And since we're not desiring God, it means we're out of His will, which then means we're meaningless, and it also means that we're going to only accomplish meaningless things. That's a big deal, don't you think? That's a huge deal. So, how do we find the will of God? We talked about this being meaningless, and we talked about being outside the will of God, so how do we find the will of God to be in it? Um, number one, we got to seek Him out. And guys, you've heard this a million times. God is interested in us knowing Him, not us knowing what He is going to do. Okay? God is interested in us knowing Him, not us knowing what He is going to do. Because the more we know Him, the more we understand Him. And the more we understand Him, the more we know what He wants. Okay? When we study God's Word, what do we do? We learn God. We learn what God wants for our lives. Which then puts us in God's will. Right? And number two, God's will is going to be done. The Lord's Prayer says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So what do we know about God's will in heaven? Okay, because obviously it's the same as it is on earth. There are many things that the will of God is, but I want to mention two main points. Number one, it is perfect. God's will is perfect. Okay? What does perfect mean? I looked at this definition, and it eight or seven different definitions. Okay? Number one, lacking nothing essential to the whole complete of its nature or kind. God has it all planned, guys, and it's all complete. He's got it worked out. It is lacking nothing of the whole. All right? Number two, being without defect or blemish. The plan has no mess-ups. God's will doesn't have bumps or hiccups. We can't cause bumps or hiccups. All right? Number three, thoroughly skilled or talented in a certain field or area, proficient. Guys, he's good at it. His will reflects that. He made us. 
We are meant to be inside this perfect will and living perfect lives, but sin has marred us. All right? Number four. Completely suited for a particular purpose or situation. Guys, the goal is fitting to our actions. The things that we're supposed to do in Christ, the jobs that he's laid out for us, is fitting. Okay? We are worked into there. All right? Number five. Completely corresponding to a description, standard, or type. God knew us, and we were made to fit his plan. Completely corresponding to a description, standard, or type. God knew us, and we were made to fit his plan. Number six, accurately reproducing an original. God's will is God. God is God's will. Which means... God's will is perfect. Does that make sense? Accurately corresponding the original. Accurately reproducing the original. Number seven, complete, thorough, and utter. Guys, we don't have to add anything to God's will. We don't have to do anything. God's will is going to get accomplished no matter what. It is going to get accomplished no matter what we do. Okay? Yes. Number seven of the definition of perfect. Number seven of the definition of perfect. If you guys want to get those definitions and my description of how God's will fits in that, I can give it to you afterwards. The slide, uh, the PowerPoint messed up, so I apologize. All right, number eight definition of perfect. Pure, undiluted, and unmixed. We can't dirty it. We cannot mess it up. Which is encouraging, but it also should humble us. Because that means God does not need us. Okay? It means He wants us. He wants us to work it out. Number nine, excellent and delightful in all respects. Guys, it is good for us. God's will is what we need. Nothing else. Excellent and delightful in all respects. And then here's the second point it is perfect. And number two, it is unstoppable. Okay, no matter how messed up we are, we cannot mess up God's perfect plan. It does not matter what path we follow God. It is going to be accomplished, whatever he wants. Now that does not mean uh, he's going to look over your sin, but we're going to get into that a little bit later. Okay, He does punish sin, and he does not like you to sin. But God's will is not affected by your sin. It's going to be accomplished. Being centered in what is perfect is the only thing we can do that is wholly right. Being centered in what is perfect is the only thing that we can do that is holy right. W-H. Whole. Complete. Alright, let's look at verse 10. Verse 10b. It says, If perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you, um, willing and submissive. That's the third and fourth qualified quality. Willing and submissive. Paul did not only worry and care about the spiritual condition of the Romans, he was excited to help them achieve the spiritual goals that are laid out for them. Okay? He was worried about where they were with God, and he wanted them to be in a better place. But Paul wasn't only worried about that. Paul was worried about him doing a good job and guiding them to be in the right place. And he was willing to do that. He was willing to go to them and guide them. Right, the church today seems to be full of those that are ready to criticize what is going on and seems to be short of those who are willing to be used by God to solve the problems they are concerned about. Guys, how many times have you complained about something in church? Multiple, right? Enough. Way too many that you'd probably be ashamed to admit. All of us. Okay? When we do that, we don't fix a thing. Okay? We don't, it doesn't solve a problem. It gets other people upset about what's going on. Okay? Criticizing the church does do nothing. It doesn't do anything good. Okay, We need to be the ones who, when problems happen, we're solvers. We're the ones that go and try to fix it. If you don't like to worship, seek God out differently. You don't have to complain about it. God is in the same music. He's in all music. All right? That's directed towards Him. So our goal as a college ministry isn't to be known or to gain respect or importance in the church. Our goal is to serve this church with an attitude that reflects that of Christ. 
willing and submissive, ready to go whenever and wherever we are called. Respect comes with right living, guys. Respect comes with right living. When we do the thing Christ wants us to do with the whole hearted devotion, those around us will notice. So guys, our goal here as a college ministry isn't to be known in the church, isn't so the church looks at us and says, oh, the college ministry, or let's the college ministry do whatever they want. That's not our goal. Our goal is to live lives respectful to Christ. Okay, And right living is the only way to live a righteous life. The only way. And then respect comes from that. And they don't, the people around us aren't going to notice so that they can congratulate us. No, they notice and then they begin to take part in the joy and excitement that is around them. Guys, we, I use this example all the time, but it's, it's so true is what we can do as 13 people. Okay? When we came back from passion and we were worshiping God, so excited about who God was no matter where we were, when it was a hymn or when it was a contemporary song, it did not matter. God was God no matter what. We've lost a little bit of that, just to bring that to your attention. But my example is, when we started doing that, the day that happened, I had 65-ish people come up to me and say something about how the college ministry was worshiping God. And not to congratulate me, but just to say thanks, because it spurred me on in worship. I wanted to worship God like that. I saw God in a new way, because you saw God in a new way. Because you sought God out the right way, I sought God out the right way. So guys, when we do these things, we don't do it so people can notice we do it so they can understand God better. Does that make sense? What was that? So they can grow. Good. We want to look to be doers for Christ and not downers. The church and those around us notice when we're downers. And the church and those around us notice when we're doing things for Christ. When we're willing to give up our ideology for that of Christ is when the church will be working as it is supposed to when the church is willing to give up their ideology and substitute that for Christ's, that is when the church will be doing what they're supposed to be doing. It's going to take effort, and it's probably going to take many failed attempts, but guys, we have to get to Rome. We have to get where we're supposed to go. It also requires us to seek and make requests to God as to what we need to do. We have a lot of ideas about a lot of things, but not all of those ideas come from God. Don't think that every idea that pops into your head is God's idea. But I'll tell you what, there's a lot of things that pop into our heads that are definitely not God's idea. But yet we think the things that might be okay are always God's idea. That's not true. We need to make requests to God and allow Him to work these things out instead of coming up with ideas and then charging at it without permission. That is where the submission comes in. We can be willing, but we can also be willing for the wrong reasons. You guys following? sure? All right. Let's go to verse 11. It says, For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you that you may be established. Um, The qualified quality here is loving or love. Paul wanted to go to Rome not because he knew there was neat stuff to see or new things to do. Paul went to Rome because he loved the people. Okay, you can see in this verse that Paul wanted to go there so that he could impart something to them, not because he wanted to gain anything. Paul wanted to better the people there because he loved them. He cared about their spiritual condition. He cared about where they were with God, and he cared about how they lived their lives day to day. The person who looks on serving God as to gain something is just looking for disappointment. If you look to serve God to gain something, if you look to serve God, even if you're seeking God's Ideas. If you look to serve God just so He'll give you those ideas, you're serving God all the wrong reasons. You serve God because you love God and because you respect God and because what God says goes. That's why we serve God. Not to get ideas from God. Not to get His knowledge. We serve God because we love wholly and completely God. But the one who focuses on giving never has such a problem. Okay, so the person who serves God as to gain something looks for disappointment. But those who focus on serving because service is out of love, then those problems don't happen. The foremost characteristic of real love is selfless giving. And it was out of that love that Paul was assuring the church in Rome. Okay, and the gift that Paul was looking to impart was of spiritual importance. Okay, what does that verse say? It says, For I long to see you in order that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. Right? Paul went there 
to establish them, to get them in Christ where they're supposed to be in Christ. Okay? Paul had a love for the Romans. He was genuinely concerned for them. And I feel like there's a lesson in this relationship. Uh, We all want love in our relationships. We all want to have the other love us. And we take joy in loving the other person in our relationships. Friends, family, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. Um, It's how we were made. Okay, but Paul didn't simply love them by taking care of them. He didn't love them by giving them personal encouragement. He didn't love them by sending an intimate love letter. Paul loved them by encouraging and wanting them to share in their faith with him. Guys, our relationships are not going to work unless we put God first, no matter what kind of relationship it is. So putting God first in a relationship, what does that mean? It means, number one, we care about our spiritual situation for us in that relationship. We care about our spiritual condition. How do we do that? Number one, are we learning about God personally? Are you learning about God? Are you seeking guidance from God? Are you letting that guidance reign in your life? Or are you blowing it off? Are you willing to see and correct your own issues? Is the person you're in that relationship with willing to listen? Number two, we care about the other spiritual situation. Are they learning from God? Can you see spiritual maturity happening in that relationship and the other person? Do you ever hear about God working? Do you guys have your relationship all the time and never say anything about God? If so, there's something needs to be fixed. Do you get worried when you don't see these things? When you don't see God working in their lives or when you don't see them seeking God out? Do you get worried when you see that or you just kind of wait till the next time happens? Are you willing to point out issues to that other person? And are they willing to listen? Number three, we care about God's place in both of those situations. Are you doing things in that relationship that does not match up with God? Gossip, boyfriend, girlfriend, sex, abuse, complacency. Where are you at in that relationship? Are you doing things in that relationship that does not match up with God? If you are, you are not seeking God. and You're not putting Him first. Is there room for God to work? You guys might, let me go back to that last point. You guys might say, oh, what if we just mess up once and we gossip? Or what if we just mess up once and we do things we're not supposed to do? It's just one time. It doesn't mean I'm not seeking God. Yes, it does. Because for that one second or whatever, you were not seeking God first in that relationship. Which you know what? You know what that means? That means that that thing is more important to your relationship than God is. You put it above God. And until you put God back above that, that thing is still ahead of God. Is there room for God to work? Or is he smothered out? You know that phrase, you know, leave room for Jesus? Hear it mostly with boyfriend, girlfriends. I say it all the time to pick on people. It's fun. Um, But it does mean something. It really does. Is there room for God to work or is he smothered out? Can you even see God in your relationship? Are you seeking the things that you're supposed to seek with that other person? Do you look to them to build your relationship with God? Are you building your relationship with God and then seeking them? How is that working? You're not going to be able to love each other in the right way unless you learn that love from God. It's not going to happen, I promise you, 100% of the time. You're not going to be able to love that person the way you're supposed to unless you seek God's love first and God teaches you how to love that person. Are you willing to work on things together or is there frustration when problems arise? Guys, I'm not saying that in your relationships when somebody says, hey, you know, I really don't like this, you can't be a little upset, you can't be a little taken back. It's okay. But are you willing to work on those things? Or are you just always frustrated when somebody brings something up to you? How is it? Number four way to tell. We care about God's leading. If God does bring up things that need to be fixed or looked at, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to fix and look at those things? If you're supposed to take different steps in a relationship, can you? Guys, in your marriage, when you guys get married, there's going to be things you're going to have to change, you're going to have to work on in order to make things work. Are you going to be willing to do that? If you're supposed to break up, are you going to be willing to break up? If you're supposed to make changes in your relationship, are you going to be willing to do that? Where is God in that? If you have to take time apart or spend time separate, are you willing to do that? Is that something you're going to be able to do? If God says this is what's got to happen, are you going to be able to do it? Are you going to be able to seek God out during that time? Are you going to be focused on other things and miss out? 
If you're supposed to take different steps in your relationship, if you need some support, if you've got to get some counseling, friends, family, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, are you going to be willing to do that? Are you going to be able to correct things? And are you going to be able to take correction? <clears throat> and then very last, number five, we care about God being glorified. We care about God being glorified. Do we base our decisions off of what God wants or what we want? Guys, because we can be with somebody for forever and learn to love them and, and enjoy their company and love to have that support and love to be there for each other. And then we start basing decisions off wrong things and we stop glorifying God and things start falling apart and we wonder why. Do we base our decisions off what God wants? Guys, we, we already discussed that God's will is perfect, right? And that's the only thing that we can do that is completely right, is to be centered in God's will. Okay? If we stop making decisions based on God in our relationships, where is that relationship going to be? Outside of God's will. Which makes that relationship what? Meaningless. Ouch, right? Do we enjoy seeking God when we do what He wants? Do we enjoy seeking God when we do what He wants? Now, we've been told many times by God to do things. When we do them, sometimes we do them with a grudge. I really don't want to do this, God, but I know you want to, so I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to get it over with. Right? In our relationships, we do that too. I know I'm supposed to pray with my girlfriend. Okay, so let's pray. Dear God, thank you for my girlfriend. Thank you for our relationship. God, please be in charge of our relationship, but I don't really mean it because I'm just same words how how often do we do that with anything do we enjoy seeking god when we do what he wants or do we do it because we feel like we should there should be a joy in seeking out god and learning to love someone there should be a joy because number one you're learning to know god better you're learning to understand god's love for you better and you're learning to love god more and then from that god's going to teach you how to love that other person that's what you want in a relationship. And then also, it's not only going to teach you how to love that person better, but that relationship is led in the right way. That other person is going to learn the same thing right back for you. You see how, better that, you see how much better that relationship gets? Just by seeking out God? When we do mess up, do we seek forgiveness from God or from each other? From God and from each other. When we mess up, do we just kind of leave it and say, oh, wow, I probably shouldn't do that again, and don't? Or do we seek forgiveness about it? Even the little things. Even the little things. And then also, do we seek forgiveness from, from each other? <clears throat> and the last point, is the point of your relationship to grow closer to God, not for the purpose of, but the reward of growing closer to each other, or are you trying to seek each other, hoping that it will bring you closer to God? Guys, I promise, if you put more focus on that other person, you are not going to grow closer to God. It will not happen. Period. End. But if you make the point of your relationship to grow closer to God, to use each other, to steps and stepping stones to get to God. If that's what you're in that relationship for, and then through that, God's going to give you the desires of your heart. God is going to help you love that person. And He's also going to help that person love you. Guys, how do you think marriages can last for 60, 70 years and still have love? I think it's just because they like being around each other for 60 years. How many times does a friend get old? Maybe hang around them like for like two weeks straight. And then after that two weeks, you're like, whew, i got to get out of here. <laughs> How many times does that happen? It happens. It happens all the time, right? And then when you take a break and you come back, you're like, oh, this is pretty cool to hang out with them again, right? But the break is nice. <laughs> yeah. How do you think couples do it for 16, 70 years? Do you think they just seek out each other? We're, we're messed up, guys. We're not perfect. We can't be exactly what we need for each other all the time. Imagine if a couple tried to seek out each other for 60 years and did not base it off Christ. There's going to be a lot of arguments, a lot of struggles, and the only reason they're not going to get divorced is because they feel like it's a bad thing. Right? But when you seek out God, and you see those couples that are like 95 years old, and they are the closest they've ever been, that's not human. That's supernatural. All right. Let's go on to the next thing. So relationships. Those were good points. Um, number five. Verse 12 says this. 
<clears throat> that is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. So number, twelve, number five, which is actually number six, number six, is humbleness. Humbleness. Paul makes sure that they understood that this trip is not going to be a one-way blessing. He wanted to make sure that this trip was not going to be a blessing only for the Romans, but also for himself. Paul was greatly used apostle that received revealed truth directly from God, but he never thought that he was above being edified by other believers. The truly thankful, concerned, loving, and submissive spirit is always and also a humble spirit. A truly humble spirit never has a feeling of spiritual superiority and never lords it over those whom he serves. If I came in here every week and decided that I was just smarter than you and I was more spiritually mature than you, and I never thought I could learn a thing from you guys, and I never consulted you guys about anything, because I just, I just knew I had it covered, we wouldn't be doing so good, would we? You guys wouldn't like that, I don't think. Um, if you do, tell me, I'll start lording over you. It's cool. <clears throat> I listened to this, what John Calvin said about this passage. He said, Note how modestly he expresses what he feels by not refusing to seek strengthening from inexperienced beginners. He means what he says too, for there is none so void of the gifts in the church who cannot in some measure contribute to our spiritual progress. Ill will and pride, however, prevent our deriving such benefit from one another. You guys follow that? Basically what he said is, there is nobody in the church that does not have something of God, as if they're a Christian. There is nobody in the church that does not is so void of spiritual gifts that they cannot impart something on you. Guys, we talked about this for five weeks in shape. Are all our gifts the same? What about the ones that are the same? Do they work out in the same ways? No. It's all completely different, right? Which means that everybody in the church has something different to offer, which means that we can learn from every single person in the church. <clears throat> Guys, we tend to rate ourselves against each other. Um, I'm at one spiritual level and you're at another, which in all honesty is true. We all are at different spiritual points in our life, okay? And with God, but the way we look at each other should be out of humility. And like we talked about a long time ago, humility requires to lower yourself below whatever requires humility. You cannot have humility towards something if you do not think it's above you, right? Which means we must place every other believer above us. And when, you, when you're below something, in order to see it, you have to look up to it. When you look up to something, you're in a position to learn something, which means that in our humility, we can learn something from everyone. You guys with? Me? Following? <clears throat> we will never be at a spiritual perfection in this worldly life. We will never get there. Which means we'll always have something to learn. We'll always be needing something else to reach perfection. And by our definition earlier, it isn't easy to get, and especially, it isn't easy to maintain perfection. It's not easy to get to that point. We probably never will in anything. But if you do get there, it's not going to be easy to maintain. Because perfect means you cannot mess up. Devin, you're good at guitar. Do you ever mess up? Yeah, right? It's just it. You're good at your schoolwork, right? You ever got less than 100% on a test? Yeah. It's going to happen, guys. All right. So we should be in a humble state. Actually, I need to continue on with my point before. So we should automatically be humbled in that respect. And if you want to argue with that point we made before about being able to gain maturity from those less mature, listen to this. We should be in a humble state anyway because since we are not perfect, we have to learn more, Right? If we're not perfect, that means there's more to learn. All right? And since we do not know how God is going to teach us next, we must be so humble that we leave every opportunity open for God to teach us. Even those who are less mature. But that is only if you want to know more about God. Guys, we don't know how God works. And He works in mysterious ways. We've all heard that a hundred billion times in our lives. Right? But it's so true. We never know how He's going to get us to the next step. We never know where that's going to come from. So, even if you don't agree with less mature people being able to teach the more mature, you must humble yourself so low that if God decided to use that, He could. Alright? So there's no excuse. We have to be humble. Alright, number 7. It's in verse 13. And I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, 
and have been prevented thus far in order that I might obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. Number seven is fruitful. Paul frequently used a phrase such as, I do not want you to become unaware as a means of calling attention to something of great importance. Uh, that he was about to say, he used it to introduce a lot of subjects, such as calling the Gentiles to salvation, spiritual gifts, and the second coming. Those are all pretty important things. So Paul is saying something here that's important. This time, he uses it to let the Romans know about his plans to visit them and how they had been prevented. Okay, But his real intent was to inform them about the real reason for his coming. Okay, It wasn't to make a social call, but to obtain some fruit among the believers in Rome and the rest of the Gentiles he ministered to. Paul's ministry was unending quest for fruit. Paul's ministry was an unending quest for fruit. <clears throat> His preaching, teaching, and writing were not the ends in themselves. Okay, the purpose of all God's ministry should be to bear fruit in His name with His power and for His glory. The purpose of all of God's ministry, everything that we do, should be to bear fruit in His name with His power and for His glory. So in regard to spiritual life, the Bible uses the term fruit in three ways. Number one, it's a metaphor for the attitudes that characterize a spirit-led believer. Okay, the fruits of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, kind of thing. You know, you get those things. Alright, so fruit refers, number two, fruit refers to action. That is holy living. The active fruit of a Christian's lips is praise. The active fruit of hands is giving. You guys follow that? Okay, so it's an action. Number three, among the Romans, what he's talking to here, the fruit Paul longed for is the one we're going to talk about now. It included both new converts and maturing converts, both being the direct byproduct of fruits of the gospel. How much fruit do we see in our lives, guys? How much fruit? We discussed last week that unless we're centered in God's will, we're meaningless. Now, how do you tell if we're centered on God? We look at the fruit. If we are not producing fruit, we are not in God's will because God's will is constantly accomplishing what it needs to do. Are we tapped into that or are we letting it happen on its own? Are we part of that happening? Is fruit coming from us to accomplish what God needs? Verse 14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. This is number eight, and it's obedience. Paul continues to talk about his attitudes and and reason for ministry right here. He says here that he wasn't doing this because it seemed fun or because he wanted to. It's because he is under obligation. Remember Paul's calling? God said, you are to preach to the Gentiles, right? He's on the road. God appeared to him. Christ did. Lord, Lord, why do you persecute me? All that stuff. You are to preach to the Gentiles, Paul. That's what I want you to do. When God called him, Paul was doing anything but being obedient to God. Okay? He was totally against obedience, mostly at that point. Okay? He was killing Christians. That's what he was doing. It seems that Paul is saying here, Don't thank me for wanting to come minister to you. Although I love you and I sincerely want to minister to you, I was sovereignly appointed to this ministry long before I even wanted to be doing it. Do you think Paul's heart, like when he saw God on that road, do you think it just automatically was like, oh, Okay, I love you, God. You think that was like that? Paul was, it, it was changed. He saw God and he was, he was freaked out. Right? It was definitely changed at that moment. But do you think Paul like automatically was like stoked about sharing the ministry? Do you think he loved the people the way he loved them now? No. It took doing what God wanted him to do to do that. Have you ever been asked to do something that was against what you wanted to do but ended up enjoying it? How many of you guys have been asked to watch kids before and you're like, I don't know, that's not bad. But then when you leave, you don't want to leave the kids because they're awesome. I, I've done that. I love kids, but I've done that. And, you know, you, you get in there and you're like, dang, these kids are annoying. <laughs> I really do not want to be dealing with this right now. And it usually happens at a time when you're excited about doing something else, but you have to go watch these kids because, you know, somebody asks you and you feel bad saying no. Um, so you're in there, you're already frustrated because you don't want to be there, and then you got these loud kids that are like headache and you're just going nuts. But then when you leave... You're like, oh, bye, Johnny. I miss you. It was fun. Right? Maybe not crying. But you get my point. You start to enjoy those kids. Because as you learn their actions and you learn the funny jokes that they have to tell you and you learn their personalities, you start to get attached. You start understanding who they are. That's where Paul was at. He was asked to do 
Um, and since he feared God, he did it. Okay? But as he began to learn and understand Christ, he became more and more compassionate about the people that he was told to tell about Christ. He began to love them, and it all started with obedience. So there it is. Taking the step of obedience leads to a lot more than what we understand obedience to be at a lot of times. Our mom tells us to clean our rooms. Simple example. We say, sure. Obedience happens, right? That was obedience. Me saying, yeah, I'll clean my room. Through that, your mom's downstairs baking you cookies. Because you did what mom said. Right? Maybe not every time. What's up, Mike? That's what I'm getting at. That's what I'm getting at. Yes. You have to follow through. So you say yes, and you're cleaning your room, and your mom makes you cookies. Right? You only clean half your room. Okay? You only clean half the room. Are you going to get the cookies? You're not going to get cookies. You didn't do what you were told to do. You were told to clean your room, not half your room. Okay? You're not going to get the cookie. If you clean your room, follow through, do what you're supposed to do, Usually that requires an attitude of, okay, I have to do this. You're going to get the cookie, right? Being truly obedient leads to what obedience is there for. Does that make sense? God calls us to do things because he has a purpose behind it. When we're obedient, the purpose is accomplished. You guys with? Cool. All right, verse number 15. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Uh, eager. Eager. Verse number, or point number nine. We see here that Paul wasn't just being obedient to preach, but that he was eager to do so. If we have obedience in doing what God wants, we're going to be eager to accomplish whatever it is he wants us to do because in having that obedience, we have love for God. And having love for God, we desire God. And desiring God, we seek God's will. And in doing God's will, we have purpose. So we'll desire to accomplish whatever, he wanted, whatever it is that he wants us to do. Paul was excited. He was stoked to get to Rome. He wanted to be there. Okay? He knew he had to go through Jerusalem. And he knew that it probably meant trouble. But it didn't matter what was on the way. He was excited to do God's work in Rome. He was excited to do God's work in Rome. Excitement and eagerness is so important to an active faith. It's so important to have that eager spirit, to have an active faith. So how can we be eager to do the work of God? If we view our God as stagnant, we are going to be stagnant. If we view our God as stagnant, we are going to be stagnant. If we don't understand that God is doing things, and we don't try to find the things that God's doing, if we're not tapped into His Word, if we're not tapped into Him in our lives, our God is going to be viewed as stagnant to us because we're not going to see God working. We're going to miss out. Which relays back to us, we're going to be stagnant. <clears throat> Give all of you to what God has in store. Give all of you to what God has in store. Try obedience. Check it out. It'll make you more excited about God. Make a decision to enjoy God. You might say, what do I mean by that? I want to enjoy God. Make a decision to enjoy God. If you truly want to enjoy God, if you truly want to know God in order to enjoy Him, you have to be in this book. Okay, and you can't just open it up and read it and then put it down and not think about it again. You need to study this book. It requires more than just looking at it and trying to get what's on the page. It requires more than that. It requires us to seek out what every word means. You know what? The reason and, the word and is in this Bible is because God wanted it there. And that might sound dumb, but it's the truth. There is nothing in this book that God did not want in this book. And every bit of it, the genealogies and stuff, that's in here for a reason. God wants us to understand that stuff. There's a point to it. Okay? It's supposed to be there. So that means we cannot miss any of this. Every bit of this was meant for you. Devin, when this book was written over the years, by man, through God, it was meant, every bit of it, for you. Jesse, the same for you. Everybody in here, it was meant, every single word in this book was meant for you to understand to the fullest. 
how hard do we try to do that? How often do we just read the book and not really seek to understand what it has to say or what it's trying to tell us? Make a decision to enjoy God. We've got to be humble to be eager. Guys, if we put ourselves below, we're going to want to get to the next level, right? We're always humble to God, whether we act that way or not. But if we look at God that way, then we're going to want more. Learn to love others around you so that you can begin to love those you don't know. Guys, if we can't love each other, the ones that we are friends with or the ones that um, we want to marry, or the, if we don't seek those relationships like I talked about in the right way, if we can't love others that we know, how do you expect to have compassion for people you don't know? If we can't love people that we understand, how are we going to be able to love people that we don't understand? You guys following? Learn to love others around you so that you can begin to love those who you don't know. Don't be ashamed of what you know. Guys, as Christians, we have something awesome to tell. Don't be ashamed of it. Be excited about it. Understand what that means. It means you are not meaningless and that you have life forever through the power of Christ. Which gives you purpose. Life had one value to Paul. And that value was to do God's work. That's it. When we understand that, that is when we're going to be able to begin to serve God in a manner that is worthy of who He is. When we begin to understand that God put us here only to do His service, and when we begin to understand that that reason is perfect for our lives, that is when we're going to start giving the God, giving God the service that is worthy of who He is. But until then, we're not. We're not giving what God deserves. Alright? Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for who you are. God, I thank you uh, for making us able to have these qualities. God, for making us able to seek you out and to understand um, who you really are, God, and who you really want us to be. God, I pray that we stop taking your word for granted. God, I pray that we stop looking at the Bible as something to make us feel better or something to get us through a tough time or something to um, you know, just read to make, it think, make us think that we're trying to know you more. But God, that we would look at that book as every word has a direct meaning in our lives. God, you wrote that book for us for that reason. So God, I pray that we start using it in that way. Um, God, I pray that these qualities we discussed today, God, can start being acted out in all of our lives. God, that we can do these things in order to serve you the way that we're supposed to. God, again, thank you for who you are. Thank you so much for sending Christ to die on the cross for us. God, and, and through that, giving us the power to have eternal life. Through the Holy Spirit, God, you work through us in so many different ways. And I pray that we can tap into that, God. That we can be centered on what you want. Thank you for a purposeful life. Thank you for a life that has meaning. God, thank you for a life that has hope. That has forgiveness. God, just make us who you want us to be. I pray these things in your name. Amen.